0: Let's open our Bibles this morning to Romans chapter 8. If you have a prayer slip or a visitor slip, uh, we would love to collect those. Jerry and Will will be down the aisle. If you'd pass that on, uh, we will collect those and uh, pray for you this week. Romans chapter 8, can you believe it? It's uh, been a journey, hasn't it? Before we dig into the text, I just want to mention something that we pray about every week around here, and that is for revival in this land revival in our hearts, revival in our church, an awakening to the things of God, and um, perhaps you've been following the, for the last 10 days or so, the spiritual awakening on the Asbury University campus, a small Christian college in Wilmore, Kentucky, I went to school just a few miles from there, and um, Asbury held their regular Wednesday chapel on February 8th, and it... The service has continued even to, to this day. Other campuses are reporting students gathering for prayer and worship and calling on the Lord. And during that February 8th um, service, uh, there was a call for a confession of sins, and at least 100 people fell to their knees and bowed at the altar of students, professors, and many who have traveled to Asbury in recent days have heard some encouraging reports as well as some that aren't so encouraging um, yes, we we're called to be discerning. I certainly want to be that. Biblical, we want to be that. Um, yes, there's always danger in events at, like at Asbury for the bizarre and the distracting. Um, we note that. But shouldn't our longing be that God's words spread rapidly and hearts be changed? We should pray for those who lead the movement And uh, pray that the Holy Spirit would lead many to Christ and that genuine revival would break out there and everywhere. Uh, that would sweep this land bearing fruit of the gospel, uh, the fruit of of changed lives and submitted to his word, the fruit that remains as Jesus spoke of in John 15. My friend David Cranford who pastors First Baptist uh, Ponchatoula said uh, this week online, shootings on one college campus but revival on another campus? Oh God, may the latter overtake the former. Amen? Maybe so. So Romans 8 Um, Romans 8's been called the most uh, wonderful chapter in the Bible. It begins with no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus, verse 1, and it ends... With no separation from the love of God for those that are found in Jesus Christ. The wonderful book ends in this chapter in the midway point in Romans. And so in my reading this week, commentators have given superlative after superlative of this incredible chapter. The Puritan Thomas Watson referred to it, verse 28 in particular, a divine cordial which is a word we don't use often, but it's a comforting and pleasant uh, tasting medicine. Um, James Boyce declared it to be the greatest chapter in the Bible. So these 39 verses in Romans 8 rightly receive the praise because these verses capture more than any other in God's word the redemption found in Jesus Christ. Perhaps Romans 8 is so stunning because it follows such a blunt assessment of the human condition. Romans 1 through 7 presents our problems and all of their ugliness and our hopeless estate. How would you bullet point that, Pastor? I'm glad you asked. God is holy and we are not. God is holy and we are sinners. The human race is under condemnation because of that. It's in a free fall, actually. Wrath has come and is coming. Jesus Christ is our only rescue, He's the only Savior there is. Faith in Jesus Christ is the only way to reverse this judgment that is rightly ours, each one of us face. Faith in him brings a legal declaration that the way for my sentence to be reversed in the courtroom of heaven is by faith in Jesus Christ and by trusting in what Christ has accomplished on my behalf, God credits his righteousness and I'm declared forgiven, justified, redeemed, in the courtroom of heaven by the blood of God's Son. Romans 8 captures the glorious message of Christianity. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that really is the essence of Christianity. I'm not condemned because of Christ, I am free because of Him. And so my purpose this morning is to take us on a journey, a panorama of this mountain range called Romans 8 and to look at this glorious mountain range, which will prepare us to scale the heights of a verse-by-verse study over the coming months. I'm praying this section of Scripture would deepen us as a church and that as we grow in our love for God, that we would have overflowing joy, that we would have um, greater boldness and boundless hope as we live for Christ in our generation. So put on your mountain-climbing gear. And let's, let's start the ascent. Romans 8. I want to highlight seven things. Seven. Seven points, Pastor. Yep. Seven of them. The first is no condemnation. Romans 8, one. There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. Romans 1 through 7 communicates that because of sin, sin we know in Adam, we are sinners by birth, by nature, and by choice. We live in a world that's under God's righteous condemnation. But that's not the final word. God, from the very beginning, all the way back in the Garden of Eden, sent a word of hope that there would come a gospel, good news, to reverse sin's um, treachery and devastation. This... This verse sets the tone, actually, in Romans 8, 1. It sets the tone of what the the chapter communicates, that in Jesus Christ, I am not condemned. What condemns us? That's not hard to find. Our conscience condemns us. Past guilt drags stubbornly in our lives at times. Um, Present failures. Who doesn't feel that on a regular basis? Whether it's parenting or job performance or just what goes on in your heart and the way you interact with other people. Oh, wretched man that I am, the Apostle Paul said, who shall deliver me from this body of death? Praise be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So, this word condemnation is it's a heavy word. It, I mean, a decision against someone, a, a condemnatory judgment. The gospel of Jesus Christ, what God has done through the sending of his son, his life, death, burial, and resurrection is good news and it brings the lifting of condemnation. So in Jesus Christ today, you are not condemned. If you are in him, you are not condemned. In my reading this week, I was awakened to this idea. The world views the church in totally different categories and we find our identity in the Bible um, the world values Christianity based upon what we can bring to the table that might benefit other people. Fair enough. We are to be concerned about human need, but that's not our charter. That's not our primary charter. We were saved for good works, and that should be the fruit of our life. The words that we speak, the way we invest our money, the generosity of our heart, our burden for others to love our neighbor as ourselves. But let us establish right here that the charter of the church is to bear witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. It's the truth. And so the world's really not interested in understanding what's true and false. The world asks, so what are you going to do about making housing more affordable? What are you going to do about the homeless problem to justify your tax exemption status? And we kind of feel a reeling with that. It's like, man, I got to get busy. And indeed, we should have eyes for love and good works. But I think the way to flip that conversation is to hold on, those things certainly need to be addressed. And we as the church, I think, are on record with pursuing those things. But I want to ask you a question Uh, What do you understand Christianity to be? We understand it to be truth in Jesus Christ. And it's the difference between heaven and hell. It is the reason we exist. Because every man, woman, child under God's condemnation, and the only hope of being rescued from that is by what Christ has done. So we want to herald that good news. And from it, we will see many good works flow. So... Christianity is held up often as you know what does it bring to the table? I, I love the words of John Piper. Russ quoted him earlier and I quote him regularly. Um, but I l- listen to Piper on this point. The essence of Christianity is that God is the supreme value in the universe. that we do not honor him as supremely valuable that we are therefore guilty of sin and under his omnipotent wrath. And he alone can rescue us from his own condemnation, which he has done through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, his son. Knowing this is what we promote. Knowing this, and if we leave that message and promote other things that may scream for our attention... Piper says, we're not Christian. We're cruel. We comb man's hair in the electric chair and hide his freedom in our hands. Oh, may we be a gospel people. And from that love to proclaim this message that God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life, that it would lead to good works that we couldn't even enumerate. Can you think of anything more valuable? And so there's no condemnation. I don't know if you're struggling with that in your life. May it be... A prompter for you to say, hey, I have refuge in Christ. I'm not condemned. Secondly, life in the Spirit. As we continue on in Romans 8, verses 9 through 11, believers are still in the flesh, but because we're born again by the Spirit of God, the Spirit of God dwells within us. Look at verse 9. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. And then Paul says, if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ in them, they don't belong to Christ. Every Christian has the spirit of God dwelling within them. When we yield to the spirit, the believer is not controlled by our sinful nature. We're yielded to him for obedience. What does that look like? It means throughout the day we're saying, Lord, I want to be in fellowship with you. I want to be in connection with you. I want to obey you. I want to live for you. I want the fruit of the spirit to be seen in my life. Oh Lord, I worship you. I yield myself to you. If you do not have the spirit of Christ, it means you don't belong to him. So our hope is expanded, as he says in verse 11, the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells within you, believer. Think of that for a moment. The the power that raised Jesus Christ from the dead dwells within every believer that we might have power to live the Christian life I don't feel like it though. Well, it's not really based upon your feelings. It's based upon appropriating what God has said, that the Spirit of God dwells in me. And notice how he takes us on on a journey in verse 26. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. This Spirit, this Holy Spirit, this third person of the Trinity, he dwells within us. And you begin to look at all the ways the New Testament references the Spirit of God. He regenerates us. He baptizes us into the body of Christ. He calls to ministry. He empowers. He fills. He guarantees. He's a down payment on greater things yet to come. He guards. He helps. He illumines. He indwells. He intercedes. Verse 26, likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness The Spirit of God dwells within us. How does He help us? Well, for we do not know what to pray as we ought. Anybody felt that way? You just get in the the presence of the Lord and you don't know. Lord, I don't even know how to pray about this. And you find yourself groaning. You can be assured the Spirit of the living God is groaning in intercession for you with words that are too deep to be even uttered. The the Spirit helps us in our distress. That word weakness means to be sick or to be weak and um, is the most common expression for illness and is used comprehensively to describe the whole person. It's used in the Gospel seven times. Um, In Matthew 8, reference to Jesus... um, uh, dying for our weaknesses, he he took our infirmities, our weaknesses in his humanity. But here in Romans eight twenty six, it refers to the weakness of uh, our sin nature, of our flesh. The Spirit helps us in our weakness. We have temptations that come upon us. We we call out to the Lord, Lord, help me in this temptation. Give me strength to overcome it, which He has promised to do. Help me in my weakness. Strengthen me within. Remind me of your promises. That word groaning, he, he intercedes with groaning too deep, too deep to be uttered. Uh, it was used to describe Israel's groaning under Egyptian bondage. I don't think I need to really expand on what groaning's like in your, your life. We know what that's like. Sorrows, disappointments, failures, the Spirit's aid in prayer is the theme in Romans 8. And he joins, um, he joins in to help us, expressing for us what we can't fully express for ourselves. Now, I want to show a cross-reference here. This reference is the Spirit of God interceding for us. Turn with me to Hebrews 7 quickly. Hebrews seven verse twenty five. I, I want you to look at how um, the scripture refers to the ministry of the Godhead in our life. We serve one God, three persons, and we've just read that the third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit, intercedes for us in our weaknesses. He comes and intercedes for us in the deepest of ways. That. It might go, those intercessions might go to the throne of God, which is our greatest need. By the way, I, that's one of the things I pray regularly in our preaching. Lord, help us to get to your throne. Help us to get to the throne of God. That's where the action is. That's where the power is. Amen. So when the Spirit of God intercedes for us, he takes us to the throne of God where our needs are really met. Now in Hebrews 7.25, it says consequently he that is christ is able what's he able to do he's able to save to the uttermost no matter how deep a sinner you are no matter what you're caught in today no matter how you're entangled in the web of sinning he's able he's able He's able to do a lot of things. By the way, that's a wonderful word study in the scripture. He's able to keep that which we commit to him until that day. He's able to make all grace abound in your life. He who has begun a good work in you will keep it to the end. And he's able to do this. What? He's able to save you to the uttermost. Those who draw near to God through him. Would you draw near to God through Jesus Christ today? He is the way. He is the truth. He's the life. No one comes to the Father. No one gets to the throne of grace except through him. But notice what it says here. Since he always lives to make intercession for them. We have the Spirit of God dwelling within us, making intercession to the throne of God in our deepest weaknesses, in our deepest troubles. And we have the the Son of God interceding for us before the throne of God, you think he gets his prayers answered? What does that do for your assurance today? It makes sense when we read later in this chapter, if God's for us, who can be against us? He's promised to be with us always. In the life application commentary, even when we don't know the right words to pray, the Holy Spirit prays with and for us, always in harmony with God's own will, with God helping us pray, we don't need to be afraid to come before him. Don't be afraid to go to the Lord. Oh, Christian, do you find yourself living in defeat because you go a hundred places but to the throne? Maybe your thinking's wrong. He doesn't want to hear from me. He's against me. Nothing could be farther from the truth. You live in a state of no condemnation, and he invites you to come to the throne of grace boldly that you might receive mercy. Number three, we're adopted into God's forever family. True assurance is the reward of tested and proven faith. And here in Romans 12 through 17, he speaks of the Spirit's work, and also that um, we are not under bondage. We are not to be like slaves who cower in fear before their master. Look at verse 15. He says, um, For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons. This is another beautiful aspect of God's salvation. We've talked about justification. We have looked at sanctification, being conformed into the image of God, the ongoing process of the Christian life. And here we find another beautiful picture of salvation, that in Jesus Christ, we're adopted into his family. Adoption is a beautiful picture of what God has done for us. So not only do we have the legal standing that we are declared righteous in the presence of God, we have the familial, we have the the language of family that we are received as a son, as a son of God. And so for... For that reason and foundation, we're to call unto him how? We're to cry out, Abba, Father. That Aramaic expression of endearment as a child calls out for a loving, caring father. Maybe that whole issue of fatherhood's a struggle for you. You had a bad dad. You could list his failures and his pain that he's inflicted very efficiently. Would you allow the scripture to flip the script on that nightmare? <laughs> and would you allow your mind to take in that he's a good, good father? It's who he is. <laughs> it's who he is. And he is righteous and just and compassionate and merciful and gracious. And he will in no way leave you or forsake you. David David said that in Psalm 27. You know, he spoke of his parents, you know, turning against him. God, in many notes, you have not left me, Lord. A mother may leave her child. That happens in this world. But not God. He will be with us forever. And we're adopted into his family. What a beautiful expression. Number four, hope in a groaning, dying world. Paul goes into that in verse 18 through 25. He says in verse 18, For I consider that the sufferings of the present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. So the things we suffer in this life, and we've seen that on display in this body, we've we've seen that on display in the news cycles. We have friends and family and others that we know, neighbors that we know, that are dealing with great sufferings, whether it be cancer or crimes committed against them or divorce or abuse this is a groaning planet and and we read in the text of Romans 8 that there's hope in a groaning dying world even for you this morning notice verse 22 for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now when did that groaning start Genesis 3 that's when it started And it's been going on ever since. Oh, there are respites. There are moments of pleasure and relief and joys in this life. This is all a testimony to God's goodness to a rebel planet. But it's a groaning, dying creation. And because of this, we need hope. We need help. And he, again, references the Holy Spirit here. Verse 24, for in this hope we were saved... Now, hope that is seen, that's not hope. The hope we talk about today, we haven't seen it yet. We've received it by faith. We've, re- rece- we've received the message of Scripture that this indeed is God's kingdom that has come and is coming. For who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait with it with we wait for it with patience. It's a living hope. It's not a roll of the dice. And this is our destiny. We have a calm assurance that whether we live or die, we're the Lord's. In fact, he says in verse 28, we know something. (laughs) We know that all things work together for good for those who love the Lord, for those who are called according to His purpose. That is a tremendous hope in a dying planet. Fifth, The golden chain of salvation 29 through 31 29 through 30 the golden chain of salvation god's sovereignty over his salvation paul makes this abundantly clear he says for those whom god foreknew he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers And those whom he predestined, he called. And those whom he called, he justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Theologians call this the golden chain of salvation. It begins with the foreknowledge of God. Before the foundation of the world, God set his affection to save a people for his glory. Charles Spurgeon once said, you may disagree with the word predestination, but you will never be able to erase it from your Bible. So let's cinch up our belt and say, God, help us to understand this doctrine moving forward. He foreknew, let me back up to that. This foreknowledge is not a forecast. (laughs) So maybe you're thinking, oh yeah, that means that God looked down the corridors of history and he saw who would believe and so he knew that in that way. But that's not what that means. And that gives us no hope because you, you labored with me for well near a year in Romans 1 through 3, seeing that there's no one who seeks God, there's no one who understands, there's no one who's righteous. So that offers little help in understanding for No, this means to know intimately beforehand. The way Adam knew Eve in the most intimate way a man can know a woman God knew his people, not in a sexual sense, but in a deep knowledge, the deepest way you can know, and in time would call them to himself. And that leads us to predestination, which means marking out the boundaries and deciding to save a people for his glory, determining the specifics of bringing you to himself. You think all the details that brought you to salvation in Christ... Were a happenstance by a God who's juggling in heaven, wondering what in the world's next? No, no. He oversaw the details, the circumstances, the overcoming of your resistance to His grace, the miracle of the new birth that came like the wind into your life to help you see and the glory of the gospel of Jesus Christ bringing transformation so that old things passed away and behold, all things have become new. So this golden chain, let me follow it out briefly and we'll pick it up later, I can assure you of that. Called, predestined called in real time, God calling people to himself. There's a general call of the gospel which we should do to all nations. And we've heard a great challenge here this morning on taking the gospel to all nations. So let me just say, any view of predestination, any view of election, any view of foreknowledge that somehow defaults to say, well, it really doesn't matter if we pray. It really doesn't matter if we send missionaries. God's in charge. Needs to be ruled out of order right now because that's not what it should produce in you and and me. Called is the effective call of God that reaches your heart and calls you to himself and is effective in bringing you to salvation, justified, declared righteous by faith in Christ alone. But notice how he says glorified. This is extending out the the. The aspects of salvation. Glorification happens when? When we leave this world and we enter into the presence of God with a resurrection body, we will be glorified. That is the Christian hope. To be glorified, to spend eternity with Him the way life should be lived. But notice Paul references it in the past tense. We'll be glorified. Why would he put it in the past tense? That's something in the future. We're not glorified now. Why would, he, why would he speak of it as in the past? Well, I think the best way to understand that is that the promises of God are so sure you can speak of it as if it's in the past and been done. We are God's children. We are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when he appears, we will be like him because we shall see him as he is. Number six, the solid logic of heaven, verse 31 through 33. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, say it again, who can be against us? If he's for us in Christ Jesus, and he is, he will never be against us. Oh yes, he may discipline us. He may take his sanding paper and rub things out of our life. He may bring sufferings for a purpose, and that indeed is the understanding. He goes on to verse 32, this solid lo- logic of heaven. He who did not spare his own son. Okay, so take this in. God did not spare his own son. Take that in. He gave his, his best. He gave us all in Christ. He, he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Oh, doesn't that speak of the love of God to us and caring for us? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? Verse 33, not a single person, not a single being, and have it stick. Number seven, you were wondering if I could do it in a half an hour. You were, I could tell. Number seven, Absolutely nothing can separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing can separate us from Him. Now, what do you mean? Well, not life, not death, not things present, not things to come. Not an angel, not a demon, not Satan himself can separate us from the love of God through Christ Jesus our Lord. What a refuge, friends. What a friend we have in Jesus. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me home. Here in the power of Christ, I'll stand. Maybe so. I read something by R.A. Torrey a man of scholarship and devotion in the previous generation. He said, even though no one else seems to be following Jesus, you be sure to follow him because he'll take you home. Would you bow with me in prayer? Our praise team's going to come. May this be a time where we confess our sins to the Lord. May we stand on the promises of God, our Savior through Jesus Christ. May he have complete control of our heart. May we bow to his lordship. Maybe you've never received Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, and you've heard some compelling promises offered today from the scriptures. Would you acknowledge your sin before God? Would you confess your need for what Jesus did on the cross, where he was your substitute to pay for your sins once and for all? Would you receive this wonderful Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, into your life, turning from your sins, repenting of your sins, and trusting in Him completely? He will save you. He will save you. He will come into you. The Spirit of God will rest within you. Would you call out to Him today? For whoever calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Maybe you you are a believer, but you're dealing with some condemnation, maybe self-inflicted, maybe your conscience is troubled, maybe you've got things that have stacked up in your life. Oh, he does not want you to carry those. Would you call out to him? Lord, forgive me. Forgive me. Give me a new beginning today in your grace. Help me to rise and walk to live for you. Father, lead us in these moments. They are yours and we surrender ourselves to you in Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand together as we sing.